This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode from Radar, our Nextworks podcast. It has been a few months, but now we're back. And in this first episode after summer, I'm here with Pascal Coppens. Hey, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. I'm here with Julie Van Zavos. Hello. Hello, Julie. Good morning. And with Peter Hinzen. Hello, Peter. And nice to see you all. So how was your summer, Pascal? Did you go to China? I did not go to China. I did not leave my home oh. and for the simple reason that we've renovated our home for a whole yeah. year. And it was the last two months and I had to do the real work, not just the thinking. This time I had to do the manual labor for two months. And so I'm a little bit brain dead right now. Okay. And you're actually a do-it-yourself guy? I didn't know that. Um, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> I don't think it's that normal that you're uh, no, do-it-yourself guy. Uh, we know that you are, and Stephen. <laughs> no, I have the biggest left hands from the universe, I think. But now we know that you're not. <laughs> no, 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 definitely. Definitely. So super impressed. And you're happy mm. with the house, Pascal? Oh, very much, very much. So, yeah, uh, I'll invite you all once and you can see it. And then. Uh, uh-huh. All the listeners will be super thrilled with that invitation. Uh, not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, how was your summer? Well, I, I spent my uh, summer months on the farm. So um, same as Pascal, manual labor. And I absolutely do enjoy that. It's the best way to find a balance. But um, back with an extremely busy schedule. But thank God we had the summer months. Ah, that's great. And Julie, how was yours? Great. Besides uh, raising the kids, I guess no manual labor to uh, to combine it with. But uh, <laughs> uh, two things uh, I actually did that I usually don't. I went to the same place on a holiday. I uh, went to Italy. Mm-hmm. It was great. And another one was, uh, yeah, I went to the movies. <laughs> because after, really? yeah. Which movie did you go to, Barbie or Oppenheimer? What do you think? Barbie. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, you knew why. <laughs> but yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I went to Barbie and uh, yeah, it was quite a surprise. I didn't expect that actually. But uh, after weeks and weeks of indoctrination, I guess, or just a very savvy (laughs) uh, marketing campaign, I just had to see it. And actually, I was surprised, Stephen, that uh, you didn't because I thought, yeah, the first episode of Radar, we're going to have Stephen Mm -hmm. talking about Barbie. But you didn't. Why not? (laughs) No, uh, because, yeah, this is going to sound strange, but I didn't have time in combination of all the other things I was doing, but I definitely will watch it when it's uh, available somewhere to to watch on TV or on a plane. So I will definitely watch it. But I did look at the facts. Did you see the budgets, Julie, of the film? Uh, Of course. I'm not a fact finder, so I'm not the girl that reminds those numbers. So don't ask me. But uh... It's pretty impressive. I don't know if there's another film that has the same facts. Like the budget to make the film was 140 million, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the marketing budget was 150 million. So this is, in my opinion, probably one of the blockbusters that has a higher budget for marketing than for production. I think the main actress got a fee of 12 and a half million dollars. But the marketing was was amazing. Eh? It was amazing. I don't think there's anyone on the planet who didn't see advertising in one way or the other of that Barbie film. It was insane. No, it's true. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, I mean, I have no idea, Stephen, but is the same amount that you spend on marketing as you do to make the movie, is that a normal ratio or is that really out of proportions? 
I think it's out of proportion. I've never seen it like that. You And I was also surprised that the budget of the film was not extremely high. Usually all those blockbuster films have higher budgets. And also the fact that they've made so many deals with other brands, I think, was extremely smart. Eh? Like, I don't know if you've seen that, but Airbnb had the Barbie house for rent, mm-hmm. for instance. So you could, you know, the, the place that so many girls had as a toy, the, the villa of Barbie, you could actually go to it in Airbnb. So all the co-branding, just think about the effect that that had. So I think the impact of their 150 million was was extremely high as well. You can spend 150 million and just do push, 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 but they had very creative forms of marketing that were super mm-hmm. successful. One of the things that I was surprised of was um, China. It did very well in China. And that's something that I was really surprised of for, for two reasons. I mean, Mattel, a long, long time ago, I think it's more than 10 years ago, opened a store in Shanghai in the most prestigious street of Shanghai, the shopping street, Huahai Road, it's called. And I went there with the family. We went to see this, all the Barbie dolls and so on. And the Chinese had never, ever experienced Barbie. They hadn't grown up with it. And so because of that, it was quite weird that uh, this store, which was expected to be a big, big thing for them, did not work very well. Uh, It's just not part of the culture of China. And so a few years after that, this shop actually closed. They had to shut it down and Barbie or Mattel left China. And so I thought, yeah, this Barbie movie is not going to do anything in China. On top of that, second reason is that um, a lot of people are saying, yes, it's feminism, woke, whatever. Uh, This is something that Chinese will not enjoy because it's different. And so what I've learned there is that the generation or the young generation are very similar in China as they are everywhere in the world. And so it's quite interesting to see the, the uptake. Even the government, the Chinese Communist Party is saying it's doing very well in promoting it. So maybe they have to clean up their image, yeah. but that's 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 interesting. In terms of demographics, is it only the young people that are going to watch it? Or is it like indeed, like we see here, it's like all generations. We had, I, when I went there, there were like Full families there. I, I don't have the exact demographics for who went to see the movie, but I do as, assume that it's it's a lot of young people, especially because there's uh, they have, there's a lot of unemployment with the young people, so they probably have nothing else to do than to go to the cinemas. Um, so that is, uh, yeah. Just to come back to the marketing for a second, I read that they made deals with more than 100 brands, so that uh, by itself is incredible. But if you think about it, if I don't know if you went to a cocktail bar this summer or to a restaurant, but many cocktail bars had their Barbie cocktail. But that was not a deal with Mattel or with the movie. That was just someone who owned a place that was jumping on the hype and on the trend. Suddenly you had a new line of pink purses without a label of Barbie. But the moment that you see a pink purse, everyone is like, oh, Barbie. So the effect that they had of free marketing on the side because of the hype they created is also an effect that is hardly seen in the marketing world. This this was really incredible. But it was everything. It was the partnerships. It was the brand. Like if you just look at the basics, as you as you just said, how they basically claimed pink this summer, it was really, really well prepared. And in terms of partnerships as well, they're used to it, you know, with the dolls and the Barbie dolls, they're used to franchising and making sure that you then can buy a shirt for your Barbie from a certain brand or from a certain thing. So they're used to that cross-selling thinking as a company, I think. And then with some savvy marketeers with it, it wasn't too hard to do that. I think also in terms of like, you mentioned the Airbnb, of course, you can't really 
reach masses to go there, you know, but they also had, for example, a partnership with Zara. It's not a luxury brand, you know, it's pretty accessible for a lot of people. So you could see that everything that they did was really also to that point and to, to Pascal's point, to really make it a movie for everybody. There's a lot of quotes, I would say, on the web. You can also see like that the movie is just basically if you love Barbie, if you hate Barbie, it's for you. You like it. And I must say it's true. It was a really funny movie. I had no expectations. I thought like, let's not go there because that's not for me. I'm not that type of Barbie girl. <laughs> but I had a ton of fun, man, really. They just laughed with the corporate world, but in a good way, you know. And in times of woke, I think it's pretty daring to make the product and the dialogue and the script so daring. And Time Magazine wrote about that too, like that the the producer, the director, Greta Gerwig, uh, Margot Robbie, the, the superstar, they actually said, We're, we will never get away with this. Uh, and they actually had the CEO of Mattel flying in during production, like you never can say this in a movie, but they all got away with it. And it's so cool to see how that also works, you know, and there's a lot of marketing, but in the end, of course, the core product has to be very, very good as well. Uh, and they... The, the, the movie is as woke as it can be, but then again, they also, <laughs> they laugh a little bit with it as well. And the fact that they can do it, I think that's a big success that they managed that. Julie, do you think that this could uh, change a little bit the direction of woke in, in the US or elsewhere? <laughs> where I'm, I'm just wondering if, if, it, if actually making humor come back into a new, uh, new kind of idea or new dialogue, a new trend could actually change the trend itself? That's a good question. I think it's a big question from my perspective to answer. But what we can see, uh, if uh, actually last week I recently um, was reminded again to the series of Sex and the City, for example. Have you seen that series, guys? <laughs> of course. <laughs> long time ago. Long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Homework after today, guys. <laughs> um, uh, next time we'll talk about sex and city. Okay, no, but uh, no. The, the, I'll talk about the city. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a <good> <laughs> <laughs> it's a good deal. Uh, if, uh, it was a, a real movement. Why? Also because people actually could resonate with the people, but it was never done before that. And you could see that in the reactions here that people were so free to talk about sex, even with women, you know, that wasn't done on television. That didn't happen. That was just a thing that was never done before. And it worked. Everybody was like sort of revolutionized. And I think, I hope that talking about things can still be done because in times of woke, it's a totally different subject, of course, but sometimes people are just afraid to say something. And I think then that's not fun. We, we just have to move beyond that. And in my opinion, the movie did that well to bring those subjects to the table and at least let everybody has his opinion. Because again, it's as woke as it can be. People that really are very caring about what's set, their needs are answered with the movie as well. We had the monologue going viral where it's all about uh, women and how perfect they should be. And I mean, you can you can be for or against, but at least it's sort of sparking a conversation, which is uh, which is fun to see. So being afraid of saying things is not only something that happens in China, I understand. <laughs> no, I, I, I do believe that uh, these things, I mean, people want to say some things uh, in a way. And if you look at the past, I mean, what the movies were actually expressing, it's, it's sometimes difficult to see them in the current atmosphere, current environment, but that will change again. And, and in 10 years from now, we're probably going to look back and say, oh, how, why did we do this? And, and so, so it's very interesting. I just think this, this movie could actually be potentially a turning point at one point to, uh, to be able to change that. Yeah, I don't know. And it's again, it's leadership, be it not the company, but also the movie. Indeed, Time magazine actually has a brilliant article on the movie. You should just read that one. 
on how they actually try to make this movie. And this movie, this idea is around since 2009, because I think that was the 60th birthday or something like of Barbie. And then they said, yeah, we, we're going to make a movie, but we're 2023, you know, it took a while. So they, they really took this very seriously, like what is the right script? What is the right person to play Barbie or Barbies? It's so well executed. I think that in itself, whether you love it or hate it, is a gigantic achievement. So I loved it about it. Well, you, you've sold me, Julie. Now I want to go see it. Yeah, <laughs> cool. I, I count yeah. on you, really. Uh, you can come. Yeah. And it's We funny. should all go together and see it. We should all go it. together. And, 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 like, uh, you <laughs> and have then the director's see. cut. We have a radar's commentary section. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we check who cries first. Who <laughs> <laughs> cry? <laughs> you won't cry? Oh, my daughter said she almost cried at one point. Maybe it was of happiness. I don't know. I'm curious now. So should I anyway, like, I haven't seen it, so <laughs> I love I'll check out with loud, her. You know, like really like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's a better thing to. Chili, uh, it, it reminds me also a li little bit of the Lego film, uh, where a toy brand becomes a, a film, and you actually pay money to go to a 90-minute commercial, mm -hmm. uh, and then you walk out of the movie theater, and you could buy all the Lego sets, and the results of Lego uh, exploded after that film. Are we seeing the same result for, for Mattel and the toys? Is this also going crazy? Are more Barbie toys and dolls are being sold than ever now? Yes, absolutely. After the opening weekend, it was the number one toy sold on uh, Amazon. So it definitely had their effects. But if you talk to Mattel, they're just denying that that is the goal <laughs> uh, because they really want to transform the company into an IP company. And then it makes me think more of Disney, actually, if you... Uh, if you read that story and how they um, went into franchising all those brands and all those famous superstars, these guys want to make 14 more movies, uh, also from Hot Wheels, for example. Or So they're, they're really going all in for okay. the IP strategy there. But it is a toy company. You know, you, you don't mm -hmm. become Disney overnight. So actually, I'm very yeah. curious because this success is also like massive. How are they ever going to repeat that? Is it going to take 15 yeah. years again or is it just going to be less successful or have they prepared that already? I am really curious to see how, uh, how that evolves. And then we know what the next phase will be. A theme park, Barbie World, Barbie, Barbie Land. They tried that already, but that didn't work. Like Legoland, huh, basically. They tried that? Yeah, already? they tried it already, but uh, apparently there's... You, you first have to have the movies, apparently, and then you can you yeah. can try theme parks. That's what we can yeah. take away. Yeah, look at Lego again, how many theme parks they have around the world. Yeah, true. Cool story. So I'm super happy you had a great summer with Barbie at the heart of your summer, Julie. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, uh, this weekend was actually the first weekend that Oppenheimer surpassed Barbie in sales. So I guess you guys just have to use your influencing skills to make sure that Barbie gets on top again, you know? Yeah. Well, now let's go to the scientist in the group now that we mentioned Oppenheimer. Peter, you sent me a message that you would like to share a story that we had data science in the past few years, and now we're evolving to something new. Can you tell us what the new phase is? No, no I'm happy to. And, and, and it's also an opportunity for you guys to, uh, to challenge me and to get your input, and also for the listeners. So this is maybe one of the first times that I'm actually doing that. But I started just before the summer getting into a new field, which I started calling content science. And we're all familiar with data science, but I think there is something new that is brewing. And I think there might be an opportunity to develop that further, to maybe even think about you know, some concepts or even companies that can come out of that. So let me just explain this. You know, we're recording this in the beginning of September. I think this is the start of a new academic year, which is a very interesting academic year. 
Last year was the strangest academic year ever because exactly a year ago when school started, there was no chat GPT, there was no generative AI. And then, you know, end of November, that burst onto the scene and it basically changed everything. I mean, we have two kids, our oldest, our daughter has just finished her higher education, but she was very much in university BC before ChatGPT. We have our son, younger, who is just starting out in university right now. And this is fascinating to see a kid going to university with a huge difference between generative AI being there or not being there. So I think we all got really excited about what was happening in the world of generative AI over you know, the last couple of months. By the way, it's now everywhere. I mean, I was a big fan of Khan Academy for a long time. Khan Academy now has AI built in, which is basically allowing you to have private tutored Khan Academy using the power of AI. I think this is absolutely fascinating. We're seeing a world now that is moving incredibly fast. I did a keynote for AWS in uh, New York, and one of the announcements they made at the uh, AWS summit was they now have what is known as HealthScribe, which is basically a generative AI tool that generates clinical notes from patient-clinician conversations. So if you're a doctor and you have a conversation with your patient or you're a nurse, then all these things have to be put into a file. And that is an enormous amount of work. I mean, a lot of doctors are complaining about the enormous amount of work they have to do, you know, that is not really related to their core business, which is basically making people better. That is something which is now taken over by generative AI. But can you imagine that? The amount of information that Amazon, in this case AWS, is gathering by understanding all the conversations of all the doctors and patients, the wealth of knowledge is just absolutely fascinating. So I think we are entering a really exciting phase now, and a lot of people get scared about this. I mean, we, we have the famous Writers Guild of America, which is on strike because they're fearing that, you know, the studios are going to generate the next scripts of Barbies or Oppenheimer with AI. I don't think it's going to actually happen. But you clearly feel that the world is moving towards a completely new paradigm, and hence the advent of what I think is content science. A couple of data points. So just recently, McKinsey, and I had the pleasure to spend six months at McKinsey, you know, a long time ago, but between two startups, have just released an internal tool, which is called Lily, which is their own generative AI tool. And what it basically did is all the knowledge of McKinsey that they have in-house is now packaged. And if they get a question from a customer, the first thing they do is they run it past Lily, and Lily can actually generate a response based on all the knowledge they have. And Peter, how do they do that with their fees? Do customers know that it's now automated? Or how do, how do they play with that? I, that? That's a really good question. So that's going to be, I think, a fascinating discovery, how these consulting firms are going to use this. Because on the one hand, they have a lot of information. But they're used to actually, in terms of fees, they're just used to sending people to their customers. Mm -hmm. And they sell warm bodies, that's what they do. And they charge a lot of money for a warm body. 
But if we're now going to have a situation where it's a lot faster or more efficient or easier to generate the data, how is that going to work? Are they going to Or will give, they sell a license? Uh, or sell a license Lily. or yeah. give Lily as a consulting as a service. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities for massive disruption. Mm. But what is interesting is they have been able to capture the internal knowledge of McKinsey and package that into their own version of generative AI. We see the same thing happening in the world of legal. Um, I know I, I spent a lot of time with law firms over the last couple of months, and the number one tool that everybody is talking about is called Harvey. And Harvey actually does the same thing as McKinsey did, but then for every law firm. So you can implement Harvey. Harvey actually goes to all your internal files, all your documents that you've you know, made for all your customers, all your contracts, all your legal documents, and then generates your own version of generative AI to be used for your law firm with your intellectual property. I mean, that is yeah. way, way, way cool. And as you probably saw just recently, OpenAI launched its enterprise customer uh, license just a few weeks ago. So everybody's been using ChatGPT. I'm paying for it. But as a company, you can now actually use what is known as their enterprise version. And their enterprise version was actually, you know, it's, it's a more robust. But the most important thing is you can actually use the enterprise version of ChatGPT, not just to use their large language model, but you can actually make it work on your content. So your files, you can upload that and actually get you know, the features of generative AI based on your documents. Mm -hmm. Now, I think what that means is we're going to see an avalanche of people using this, but we have to manage that. Yeah. I got an email in the summer from a big tech firm. I won't name the one, but it's a tech firm that I do a lot of business with. I do a lot of keynotes for them and their customers, and I really like them. And they sent me an email saying, well, we are you know, in a professional relationship, but you probably have some data from us, PowerPoints, documents, even emails. We want you to prove that you have not uploaded any of the data that we have ever provided into a large language model. Wow. I mean, well, how, how weird you, is how that? Can you, and how can you prove how that? Can you that. So I think we're going to get into a shit show of compliance just to be able to show that you're not using somebody else's data to put into a large language model. We're going to have to be very careful what goes in, what goes out. So this is where I think the world of content science is going to become important. One of my favorite quotes is from John Nasbitt. He's you know a guru from a long time ago. And one of the quotes that I love from John is he said, we are drowning in information, but we are starved for knowledge. And this is an old quote. I mean, this is in the days even before the advent of, you know, the digital revolution and certainly now the AI revolution. But I think this is absolutely true. I mean, I, I have no idea how much data you have or how much content you have. I have no idea what's on your laptop, but we're all individuals. But if you go to a company, they have a shitload of content. I mean, they have SharePoints and OneDrives and Google Drives. I mean, it's piling up with a lot of content. And I think what we've done over the last couple of years is in the data part, we've cleaned that up. And that was what we call data science. I mean, every company now has a data science department. Many companies have data scientists. And data science is now a well-established, you know, I think, profession. 
to give you an idea, uh, the bank that I'm a board member of, we have about 200 data scientists. And what they do is they basically take all the structured information of the bank and put that into a very coherent you know, way of cataloging that data. But data science is a combination of mathematics, combination of computer science, and then applying that to a domain knowledge. Now, as I said, this is widely established. But I think we're now starting a new field, not about the structured data, but about the unstructured data. Not about, you know, where does Stephen van Bellingham live or what purchases has Julie or Pascal done, but it's about content. It's the Word documents, it's the PowerPoints, it's the PDFs, it's the emails. And if you look at content science, it's a combination of you know, that whole computational linguistics, uh, neuro-linguistic programming, it's a combination of algorithms and then applying it to a domain knowledge. And I think this is going to be fascinating because we're going to have to figure out not just how to deal with the structure, but with the unstructured information. There is an estimate that if you look at all the stuff that a company has, that about 20% of it is basically structured. So 20% is records in a database. We figure that out with data science. But 80% of the stuff that a company has is unstructured. How are we going to deal with that? And I think this is going to be a world where that idea of information and knowledge management becomes really crucial again. Now, I'm going to give you an example. In the world of data science, we've seen the rise of a new type of technology players, and they're called data governance tools. And we actually have a company in Belgium, uh, which is one of the leaders there. It's a company called Colibra. And Colibra is, I think it was Belgium's first unicorn, so you know, a reason to celebrate anyway. But Colibra is a company that actually became really, really a global leader when it came to the concept of data governance. And what it means is, I mean, all the databases you have in your company, you need to orchestrate that. You need to know what version, what quality control, and especially with things like GDPR that came along, where you had to show an audit trail of what information was known at which point, that whole data governance became extremely important. Now, Colibra is not alone anymore. There's now plenty of companies actually in that space of data governance. But I think what we probably are going to need is players in the world of content governance because companies very soon are going to have to figure out how they orchestrate all the content sources in their company, how they're going to use that to train these large language models, and how they're going to use that to combine it with the chat GPTs of this world. The, the technical term is called grounding. So grounding is where you take a large language model like ChatGPT, but you connect it, you ground it with your own personal data, with your own intellectual set of content. And to be able to manage that, to be able to control that, I think that world of content science is going to become really important. So what I predict is that we're going to have two things. One is where a company now has a data science department and data scientist. I think in the future, companies are going to have to build content science department and content scientists. And I don't know who these are. I think they're like Conan the librarians, you know, who understand content. And they're not the database nerds, but they're people who think about unstructured data. And the second thing I predict is that we're going to need to probably implement these content governance tools because 
there is going to be regulation that comes along in terms of AI, and there is going to be a lot of pressure, like I gave with the example with the email, where you have to prove that you're not actually misusing information in terms of generative AI and using that to feed other large language models. So my prediction, we're going to have content scientists and content science department, and two, we're going to need content governance. And I'd love the input, the wisdom of the crowd on this. I mean, I'm really interested to hear your feedback and and yeah you know, and your input. But also, you know, listeners out there who want to develop this further, please reach out. I'd really like to focus on that emerging field of content science. And if you have great ideas or input, you're more than welcome. Yeah, I actually completely agree with the excitement that you have around this. Um, <laughs> you can not, feel it, right, Pascal? Yeah, yeah no, no, no. But it's, I, I mean, to be very honest, I mean, ChatGPT, uh, I was like many people just waiting and seeing and what is it going to be? I tried it out a man, number of times and now I'm, I'm a little bit addicted to it from time to time. But it was like, yeah, we'll see. But then just as before the summer in June, I went to San Francisco for a keynote. And I was invited by a private equity company that uh, invited like uh, a dozen CIOs, chief information officers. And I can tell you the presentations that I've gotten there, which I can't share, of course, that I saw on generative AI and the amount of startups and companies that were actually being building stuff that was completely hidden, just like you say, nobody knows what they're actually doing, but it's hidden because it's it's kind of a middleware, it's a translator, it's something that you need to make sense of it all. Uh, It's not the cool chat GPT, but it's something that the industry can use that uh, that sectors like whether it's it's logistics or it's it's in in, in the medical care or anywhere. I mean, like uh, like the legal, it was all there. It was a huge graph I saw with hundreds of companies and they were all interested. And these CIOs, this was top of their mind. They wanted to know what will this mean because it's going to transform every company completely. And to be honest, they were still figuring it out. I mean, this is just because it's so new and where it will go and how far it will go, nobody knows. But content was definitely on the table there. Had a lot of interesting discussions. And so for me, this was an eye-opener. And I'm convinced now, after these presentations, not that ChatGPT will change the world, but that actually the generative AI, under the radar, things that you don't see, but that is practical use and can just be plugged in. And we're all talking about subscription models. So I think that answers one of these questions. This is really where, where it's going to be. Uh, the other thing that I was very excited about is that China was also top of the list on their <laughs> mind. So, but that's a different topic. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree, Pascal. And I think the reason I think the CIOs are excited is that they're not the chief data officers. They yeah. are the chief information yeah. officers. Yes. And the it's fact that we're content. now actually making a huge quantum leap mm. in going from the data focus, which yep. has been the last 15 years, to the information focus, is going to expand their responsibility. But I think it's also going to mean that they have to take on, all of a sudden, whole new dimensions that they didn't think of before. So I, and, the CIO yeah. is really challenged at this moment. And they're challenged for one more reason. They don't know who to hire and who to fire. Basically, some people will gain jobs and others will lose jobs Mm. because this generative AI will actually 
be so efficient in some areas that you don't need to pay these consultants or pay people to do certain things. You can do it in-house. So suddenly, what was done outside the company seems to be now going back inside the company with just a tool that you use with a subscription. And they're trying to figure out what does this mean. And, and one of the conversations I really was uh, amazed of is they many of these companies had um, outsourced uh, software programming to India, and they were like, yeah, we can actually reduce maybe 80%, but how are we going to do that? It's changing our whole organization. But at the same time, they need to hire other people mm -hmm. to make other things make sense. And so maybe they have to put it back in India to do the content management or whatever. So it's it's quite interesting discussion right now. Yeah, it's, it's very much in flux. And and McKinsey you know, just recently published a report, which I found really interesting. They, they asked a lot of their top customers, how AI was going to change the workforce. And 43% uh, of the companies they talked to said that they really believe that generative AI is going to have a significant reduction in their workforce. Mm. So they really see this as a way to optimize the people that work for them. Yep. And, and if you look at where they think that's going to happen, the number one is in service operations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, any type of customer interaction, customer engagement, you know, typical help desk activity, service operations is the number one thing where they're going to see an impact. But if you know that in contact centers, what is it, 80% of the questions are always the same? <laughs> It's pretty easy to automate this with the current technology. And, you know, you can make avatars, you can do it with voice, you can do it with words. So the, the customer can still choose the channel of their preference and you get an answer in, in real time. Yeah, and, and Steven, I, I know this is something that you're probably going to spend a lot of time on, but I'm really hoping that this is not just going to make call centers more efficient. I'm really hoping that it's going to significantly really improve you know, mm -hmm. the satisfaction from the customer side, because yeah. I think this is something where over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of automation of, of the chat, but honestly, sometimes it's more frustration. I mean, I, I recently tried to get you know, a new telco uh, connection for my daughter, and I, it's, it's frustrating Terrible. beyond belief. And I know, Stephen, that this is a company that you've spent probably at least 10 keynotes talking about customer service. Their customer <laughs> service was terrible, you know? <laughs> and, and so I'm hoping it's going to be a real improvement on the quality, mm -hmm. not just on the efficiency. Yeah, and, and I'm surprised, you know, the ChatGPT is now what? Uh, it came out in November last year, right? Yeah, so it's end almost of November, a year yeah. out. And, you know, I, I was actually expecting things to improve faster on the chatbot side of, of contact centers. So, you know, it's it, in my opinion, it's it's evolving too slow on that side. It, 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 I don't know why, but it, it, to me, it sounds like this is a very easy thing to improve. The technology is here. Just, just make it happen. That's maybe a good question, indeed, that relates back to what Pascal also said, like that move from data science to, to content science, then Peter... Is it the CIO who has to think about his team 3.0 or 4.0? Or is it really like a rethink of, hey, how do we manage talent in our companies? What do we need? How do we start? Where do we start? Because indeed, it, it sounds like we, we need less of some skills. We need a lot more of others. But how are we going to organize that? Who's thinking about that? Because that might also be a reason, uh, Stephen says, like, why isn't it implemented yet? It's You, you still have to have people to do it, no? Eventually, yeah, one, one of the answers that I had in, in June uh, with the CIOs was that they're 
uh, job description was becoming very, very wide. And it was part, they had to be involved in so many different things that before it was much easier and, and talent. And so the whole HR part is now at the core of what they need to do. Because before people, uh, I mean, went to the HR department, now to they need to go to the CIOs to figure out what the future and the trends will be. And so they're making all the decisions these days, how and who to hire and where to hire. It, it's very much a different roles that they're starting to get these CIOs. And the other thing that I, I wanted to share as well is the version updates was what they were so excited about or interested about of software. Because suddenly the big problem with software is that you have new versions and you need to upgrade those new versions because before that took like 80% of the workforce to just get that down. Now it's just generative AI can do it actually without coding, without any problems. Meaning from now on, you can actually release new versions of software much, much faster. So it will speed up the world of deliveries of, of new software, which could be used in customer experience or customer centers, service centers, or anywhere you want. And so that excites me, the fact that the pace of deliveries of new products is actually going to be faster from now on. And, and, and they, their role is therefore much more uh, complicated of the CIOs because they need to know who to hire for that. But I think you're both right. But I think, Julie, rethinking that talent is going to be fundamental. I mean, what skills do we need and what capacity and what frequency? Back to Pascal's point, I think the CIOs, they've learned from the past. I mean, the CIOs in many cases were dumbstruck 15 years ago when digital all of a sudden burst onto the scene. And a lot of the CIOs were not ready because you know, that created the advent of chief digital officers and a lot of the marketing departments all of a sudden got more technology budget than the IT department. I think the CIOs are now realizing that's not going to happen again. We have to find a way to control this. But to Julie's point, many of the HR departments are not ready. I think that idea of rethinking talent, which is going to be a big part of this, this is where most HR departments are still trying to figure out how to do this because most of them are still very transactional mm -hmm. and not that strategic. And that's going to be a huge opportunity to rethink the world of HR as well. Yeah, and they're going to have to learn about models and learn about data and learn about content. And, and for HR managers, that's going to be a challenge, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think it's only HR, you know. If we work with the huge banks, global banks, and then if they come and knock on our door about L&D programs, it's all about digital literacy, you know. The, the thing you mentioned about digital, it came on their plate and the CIOs, okay, they are running right now, but is the rest of the company really up to speed already? Or do they also have to think about their talent strategy there and, and how to reskill that everybody, of course, embraces it? So I think it's a much, much uh, larger question than just the one at the CIO's plate, I think. And I think it's also a bit scary, you know, back to school, everybody's back to school. I love that example of uh, the clinical trials, you know, and how it speeds up things. If you see other less private companies that have to adopt these things as well, you know, you send your kids to school and they have to work not in these systems today. How are we going to sort of make sure that these institutions are up to speed as well? I think that's scary to see if your kid is in, a, in an educational system where this is not up to speed yet, and then they have to go to a world where it's running plus 10 or, or, I mean, it's crazy. So I think uh, it's a much bigger question. Uh, so Peter, I think you're right. <laughs> Content science is a big thing and uh, we, we sort of have to think this through. Yeah, we all agree, Peter. Cool. Uh, and as I said, I mean, any input from the audience, listeners, more than welcome and happy to dive into that. I, I think we might be bringing out a, maybe a content science little ebook very soon to focus uh, on these topics. 
Yeah, sounds like a good idea. Shall I share the good, the bad, and the ugly of customer experience yes. this summer? A more <laughs> light topic, but I've been working the last few months on a new book. It's called The Diamond in the Rough. It will be released on September 26th, which is also my birthday, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And it's a, a book that is not about AI. I wrote a book about CX and AI five years ago, Customers the Day After Tomorrow. But this one is about building a customer culture because I'm still convinced that customer cultures will be the key differentiator. Because, you know, in the beginning, the technology is always cool, but after a while, it becomes a commodity, it becomes mainstream, it becomes a hygiene factor. If you've done it right, you're successful. If you've done it wrong, you're in trouble. But at the end of the day, making a difference towards customers is what could differentiate your brand. So I've been focusing on customer culture examples. And I would like to share the good, the bad, and the ugly that I saw this summer. And I have two good stories. First one, wonderful customer service. Peter, you just complained about the customer service of the telco industry in general. I think it's not just the brand that you worked with, but there's still some challenges in that entire industry. But I saw a wonderful example. It's from uh, Patagonia. Their customer service is super, super convenient for customers. So what they promise you is that um, if you buy something from them, that they will fix it for years, I think forever. They will pay for it. They will take care of it. Now, what is a problem for many people that you don't have a Patagonia store nearby? Like this summer, my family and me, we were in Amsterdam and my, my wife bought a new coat, beautiful coat from a beautiful brand. And they told her, you have lifelong guarantee. Oh, we said, oh, that's super nice. And how does it work? So, well, if there's something wrong, just go to any store in the world of our brand and they will fix it for you. And we said, okay, but do you have a store in Belgium? Uh, no, but we have stores in Amsterdam, in New York, in Berlin, <laughs> in Copenhagen. And if you go to any of those stores, we'll fix it for free for the rest of your life. Uh, but we live in Belgium. Well, you can still come to this store and we will fix it forever. So super great idea, but lousy in practice for the customer because we won't drive to Amsterdam up and down to fix it. So what does Patagonia do? You send them an email. And you say, look, my zipper is broken or there's something with my backpack. And then they tell you, okay, what you can do is you go to the nearest place in your neighborhood, anyone who can fix it. These are some addresses that we can recommend, but you can go anywhere. What you need to do is you fix it, you pay for it. Then you take a picture of your receipt and email that picture to us with your banking details. And within three working days, we will put that money back on your account. And, you know, it is so simple, but there is no one else in that industry that I know that does it like this. This is completely thought of from the point of view of the customer. You have a jacket, it needs to be fixed. You don't want to spend any time and money on it. So we're going to make sure that you don't have to spend any time and money on it. Completely a process thought from the customer's point of view and not from the organizational point of view. And it's those kind of simple examples that I think we need more in this world of CX. This is customer culture where you don't think about your process, you think about the customer's process and you figure out a way to make it as easy as possible. Stephen, I, I have a question. It's something that's been on my mind for many, many years. So when, when there's a new service that has been provided like this one, which is real revolutionary, how do they calculate if they can actually afford this? Because it could be out in the open. I mean, this could really 
be great service that is, uh, when there's millions of people doing it, probably it's affordable, but in the beginning, they must be losing money to do this. I mean, whenever there's a new service like that, which sounds great, how do they know that it's not going to bankrupt the company? I, I'm always wondering that, that part. Well, it's exactly because of that question, Pascal, <laughs> that most companies don't do it. Okay. Because they start to make an Excel sheet and they're like, we don't know. Yeah. Holy cow. Holy cow, we don't have, uh, we have no idea, but if 95% of our customers starts to do this, we're out of business. Yep. Reality is that Patagonia is a good brand, so the quality is high, and that most people don't have issues with their product. And the moment that they do, they fix it. So what happens next is that it's a small fee. But on the other hand, if you think about it, Pascal, it's also efficient for them. Imagine that I have to fix a zipper and it's uh, 25 euros. So I send them an email, they pay me versus I go to a store. Someone from that store has to invest time in me. They have to find a way to fix it as well. So they need a network of fixers that they also need to pay. In my opinion, this could be far more efficient than the traditional model where you have your own staff fixing it or where you have your own network, mm -hmm. where you have to invest time in it as well to do it for free because you offer it as a service. This is far more efficient for them. But because they trust their own brand, they trust their own quality, they trust their own people and service, they just take that leap of faith or do they actually calculate uh, as well? I don't know the behind the scenes story of this, so I assume mm -hmm. they make some calculations. Mm -hmm. But, but it's a lot it's about trust. trust, probably. It's a lot yeah. about trust. It's the thing that I talk about most in my in my keynotes and workshops. So the ninety five five percent rule. Yep. M most of the time, there's not a disaster waiting to happen. It's just a small percentage of people that actually use or those services or or even would abuse these services. So usually, it's a lot less painful than what organizations think. But they spend so much time on it, thinking, calculating it. Worst case, best case you know, medium case. And at the end of the day, you know, it's usually much better than what other people take. So usually companies make it too complex, is my feeling. Yeah. yeah. And a second good one that I wanted to share is a very creative example. I don't know if you saw this, guys, but Tesla opened up a movie theater drive-in that you can watch some some clips of famous movies while you're charging your car. So they are building this in East Hollywood. And they have about 30 spaces where you can supercharge your car. It's going to be a beautiful, you know, designed building like in the 60s movie drive-in diner kind of experience. There's a, a rooftop restaurant that you have there. And, and you know, we, we know that Tesla tries to do creative stuff and come up with, with new things. But I really like this because it shows that they're starting to think differently about charging your car. And I had this discussion with multiple oil companies that have gas stations. Uh, all these gas stations are in this transformation from a focus on people coming in with their car, getting gas towards, we have to become a retail company is what most of those brands think. We have to create a beautiful store. I have to make sure that people have, can have a coffee in a nice way while they're waiting for their car to be charged. This goes one step beyond. This is not just providing coffee and a nice retail experience. This is a whole creative concept where you offer entertainment while people are waiting. And I think this is sometimes yeah, something that we're lacking in many businesses that we're over-focused on efficiency and existing concepts, but you can completely rethink the whole situation and maybe 
gas stations on the freeway should offer massage service, uh, sauna, <laughs> uh, cooking classes. Uh, I, I don't know what, but you can go really lectures, wild. Lectures. <laughs> lectures for lectures. Peter and Stephen <laughs> and Pascal. Huh? Yeah, there's, there's so many things that they could do. Concerts. You have 20-minute concerts that you have there from, from local artists. I mean, we're, we're sometimes so stuck in the existing thing that we don't see the opportunity to do something super creative like Tesla did here. Do you have to drive a Tesla to go there? I don't think so. I think that like they have a deal with Ford that they can mm. also charge the car. So I think everyone that has a deal with Tesla can go there. So it's not a community <laughs> building thing. It's really a, a service. Uh, that reality will be that probably 90%, 90 of the cars will be Tesla be drivers, Teslas, of course. Huh? Just to, yeah. to get to know other Tesla drivers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, yeah. two thoughts on that, Stephen. I think uh, you're very right. They have to reinvent their side businesses as well, also the existing stations. I happen to be very close to data in that sector, like how that on the go, how those shops are doing and not very well. Actually, there was a huge consolidation happening, a lot of them closing down. So in, indeed, it's a matter of reinventing the ones that stay and really offer those services. I think that's a very valid point. I think on the other hand, we also saw a lot of news about Tesla, not really on the good side of, of customers' uh, experience this summer. So I'm, I'm a bit curious as well, like how you look at that, because indeed they're so... Let's um, wait for the ugly. Let's wait for the <laughs> ugly, actually. <laughs> I, uh, I rest my king, Stephen. I'm curious. <laughs> no, they're coming back. They're coming back later in the story. Thanks for the teaser. I don't know if we have the same thing, but I wanted to stop you so that I wouldn't lose my ugly, because it's really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> go to the bad, Stephen. We go to the bad. We go to the bad. One of the bad things in customer experience experience is telemarketing. Uh, if you still have a landline in your house, maybe for an alarm system or something, and that phone rings, yeah. you know that it's going to be a telemarketing guy or girl that is trying to sell you something. Or if you have an unknown number, I try not to pick up my phone when it's an unknown number, but sometimes you've done it and then you pick up and it's like someone that wants to resell you a magazine or a newspaper or those kind of things. It's terrible. We all hate it. So we have to solve that. And then the bat can become beautiful. And we have this guy, Jolie Anderson, who created a tool with ChatGPT and a voice tool to start automated conversations with telemarketing people. So the second that they call you, you can put on the Jolly Roger, it's called, the Jolly Roger software. And then it starts a fake conversation with these telemarketing people. So they're trying to, for instance, sell you a credit card. And then the reply from the machine is, Oh, yeah, 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 credit cards, uh, all good, but I'm having troubles here with my remote control. I can't start my favorite Netflix show. Do you happen to know how that works? And then those people are completely off their script and they're like, uh, no, but I want to talk about a credit card. And then, for instance, the machine says, oh, no, there's a bee on my arm right now. There's a bee on my arm. What should I do? And then sometimes they go into the conversation so it's incredible. And this guy invented this to play with it himself, but he's now also selling this. So you can get a subscription for $25 a month. You can have a subscription to Jolly Anderson's tool, the Jolly Roger, to you know play with telemarketing people. And the goal of the tool is to keep the guys on the phone as long as possible. So he's going for 15 minutes as average to make sure that those people go completely crazy before they hang up the phone and you don't have to hang up the phone. I did this was extremely funny. I'm going to get this software because uh, for me, it's uh, every day on the landline, there's someone calling. 
And the reason we haven't cut the landline is because my mother is calling the landline always. She prefers to call the landline. She's used to call the landline. Now, I wonder if I use this software and the software starts talking to my mother, if they can make it to 15 minutes. So I'm going to try that out. Well, the, the funny thing about it, so I, I don't know, Stephen, if you've actually listened to some of the conversations, but what is fascinating is in the software, you can actually select the type of person <laughs> to respond to. So it's like a stereotype. And I think the original version had three. One was called uh, Salty Sally, which is like an overworked mom. Uh, the second one was Whiskey Jack, which is a senior citizen with an alcohol problem. And the, la <laughs> the last one was called Whitey Whitebeard. Whitebeard, uh, that's the yeah. one that I saw, Whitebeard. And, and that's actually somebody suffering from Alzheimer's. So three very, very, you know, <laughs> interesting stereotypes of, you know, things that you can say, that's the type of response I want to give to my telemarketer. So Pascal, with your mom, I have no idea which one you would choose. <laughs> well, not the drunken one. That <laughs> would get me in trouble. <laughs> to the point of... Um getting somebody on the phone actually <laughs> you made that point as well and we often blame like the old companies like yeah you didn't manage that we can call the utility company etc but i must say i'm not sure like what tech company are you happy with the seeks of by accident i have two linkedin profiles now i'm trying to delete one i can't actually get my linkedin back on my mobile phone even uh, and you have to try and contact linkedin to solve that it's a it's a disaster really so i'm, I'm wondering like is, is it with every tech company if you have an issue if they somehow mm -hmm. failed to do a good customer experience then the bad starts or i mean what's your experience yeah. with this. Well, it depends. Uh, it, it's difficult to get someone from all those companies on the phone. I had so many yeah. people reaching out to me that, for instance, their Instagram was blocked and getting messages. Can you help? Do you know someone there? Because uh, I, I'm, I'm completely stuck. I had it myself that my Instagram page was blocked once for God knows what reason. And actually the only way to get it back is because I happened to know someone who worked there and they helped me out because the traditional way didn't work. On the other hand, you have a company like Booking.com, Julie, who has is also a tech company, but they have one of the largest contact centers in the world. Same with C-Trip. C-Trip as well, yep. yeah. And the majority of their calls are proactive outbound calls. So they call you and try to fix problems before you know that there is a problem and There you see that people who, who actually were on the phone with Booking.com, their satisfaction is extremely, extremely high. I, I had once an experience with Amazon. We, when we, Peter and me, when we did our early Nextworks tours in San Francisco, we gave our speakers a, an Amazon voucher as a gift to thank them. Mm -hmm. And I ordered uh, a, a bunch. It was like for $5,000 of, uh, of gifts. So it was a pretty large amount of money. So I ordered it. And within two seconds after my order, I got a phone call from Amazon to double check if it was really me. So they have some security built in, but you going to Amazon yourself, I don't know if that is that easy. No. So they have, they have big issues there. No. One of the most frustrating things for me has always been no telephone number on websites. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you, there's no way to contact people. I mean, I've, I'm using a website builder all and there's, it's a community that helps you and you can just not find solutions in any time. So you don't know if it, are they going to solve it today or tomorrow? It's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. I think that should be solved. <laughs> Maybe generative AI can do that because um, I have no idea how that will work otherwise. Yeah. 
imagine that something goes wrong and that Alexa starts to talk to you automatically. Like, <laughs> Pascal, I uh, discovered you have a problem here. That would be fun and scary at the same time. In the oh. voice of Salty Sally. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're moving slowly to the ugly. So let me share my ugly example. I, I feel that you're in the mood for that. And it's from Tesla. Uh, I don't know. Right. If, Julie, yeah, was right. Julie was right. I don't know if it's the same thing that that you saw, uh, Julie. But this is the craziest thing I've seen in a long time. I don't know if you read it, but they decided to stop producing Tesla S's and Tesla X's with the driving wheel on the right hand side of the car. Did you see that? Yeah. So they don't want to do that anymore. So they don't want to make a car with a driving wheel on the right-hand side. So people who drive on the left-hand side of the road have an issue with that. So if you live in the UK, it's kind of difficult. But you could say, okay, if they announce that, uh, we're going to order another car. But what happened for people in the UK who actually ordered their car <laughs> months ago, they're now getting cars with the driving wheel on the left side of the car. And there's no other choice anymore. So those people freak out and are like, what the hell are you guys doing? I mean, we paid more than 100,000 euros for this car. And now we get this. So Tesla was like, yeah, we need to solve this. Yeah. Did you see how they solved it? No. They created a new tool that you can buy. It is called the Reacher. <laughs> it's in a beautiful designed Tesla box, the Reacher. And it's like a robotic arm that you can use. So if you're like in a parking garage and you have to take a ticket, which is on the right-hand side of the car, if you're driving in the UK, you now have this robotic arm that you can use to grab the tickets or put the ticket back in. And I thought, this is this is completely insane. Eh? This is completely insane. So look, I imagine the brainstorm, like, guys, we have to stop with the production of uh, those cars. How will we solve it? And then Elon's like, well, make them a robotic arm. That's, uh, they I thought it was a joke. Them. I thought that was just a hoax. This is real? This is I've been looking into it myself. I I, I think it's real, what unless I missed the hoax. But I think it's sense. it's real. I saw, the, I saw the boxes with the machines in it. But I think Elon Musk is just having a, a moment where he wants to change the world again. And everybody driving on the same side is maybe, uh, maybe. maybe, maybe it's time. what the world needs. And maybe he's the only one that can make that happen. So, but <laughs> very interesting. So is there no legislation in the UK that, you know, if you drive a car that you actually, you know, are, I don't know, for insurance purposes or whatever, that you should actually know. have your steering wheel on the other side? I don't know. Well, you can drive from Belgium to, to, to the yeah, UK. Yeah, but then and... your insurance is a Belgian insurance. I have no idea um, what it means for a UK car, because I can imagine if the whole infrastructure is based on people <laughs> having their steering wheel on the right, that is yeah. probably going to create some sort of a dangerous situation. Especially yeah. the transition to go from left to right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the roundabouts, I can't imagine what's going to happen there. <laughs> I think Pascal wants to try this. <laughs> <laughs> I told this story to a friend this, this weekend who's really into cars. I haven't found it online yet, but he told me that a lot of brands of electric cars, especially the new brands, don't want to make cars with the steering wheel on the right-hand side of the car. Wow. That this is going to be an, an, an issue is what he predicted. I, I, I haven't found that myself, but uh, it's it, it, this, yeah, this could be a problem that maybe in the UK they will have to drive with 
Exciting. Gas and diesel for the rest of their lives. Who knows? We're now making this a good thing, but <laughs> it's it, it remains a very, very ugly thing to do, I think, as you mentioned, uh, Stephen. And yeah, it's ugly. And Was that the same story you no, had? Not at Tesla all. Shooting? And I think that's that's the warning sign. You know, it's not the only story. Okay. Okay. I think there was what another... Did you have? They actually started a team and their job was to cancel claims about the battery life. So people calling in, if they can find a phone number, hey, my battery life is just not what it's promised to be. Uh, they just canceled all the things. They're just like, you're not right. Or data says that everything is all right with your battery. So that was another example. And then actually a colleague of ours as well, she had tons of discussion to try and reach somebody. She had issues. Yeah. So, I mean... I think all these little warning signs, if you look at it, it's a, it's a product company. They're behaving like a startup that wants to get the product right. And they were famed because of their friction hunting. I think you even wrote blogs about that, Stephen, like how good they are in removing all friction. But now they're pretty much going to the edge of what's acceptable for mm -hmm. brand lovers. Because if it really hits, yeah. hits your convenience, I mean, these are things that are not small things, you know. It's they're super efficient as an organization. They're more efficient in production than Volkswagen what I've read this, this summer. But I also had a friend who called me who said, you're the CX guy. I want to tell you this about Tesla. And it was a complete nightmare story to reach the right people to get help. So yeah, yeah they, it's they an get away impressive brand, but they get away they're a little bit ugly. People love the story. The yeah. story is not ugly. Uh, what they're trying to do and trying to change is super cool. But again, they, uh, they probably have to hire a VP of customer experience or read your book because uh, starting from yep. the customer processes, Stephen, we listen to you. Yeah, then... Uh, have yeah, a job I will do. send it to Elon on September 26th. That's what I will do. But I think what you should do, Stephen, is that every year you should organize like a gala <laughs> evening where you the highlight good, the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think people would come for the good, but they would come for the ugly even more because, mm -hmm. you know, that would be, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that my telco uh, is going to be in your ugly category and I can throw tomatoes at them. At it's like the Oscars scenario. and the raspberries organized at the same venue. Exactly, yeah. Well, let's go to China, Pascal. We didn't hear you yet as a final topic of our radar here. What do you have planned for us and our listeners? Well, I'll just continue on the ugly. Um, okay. and, uh, and there's my mailbox and my, my social media has been uh, completely going crazy the last months uh, on the ugly of the economy of China. And this is a topic that everybody's talking about these days. China is in a downturn. China might be falling or failing. It's, it's a lot of bad news every single day. And so I get a lot of emails, a lot of questions like, what does this all mean, this economy? I mean, what is happening? Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to be able to answer all these questions, but it's not a very positive story at the moment. And so what I'd like to do is just to go through the 10, I would say, main downturns or, or failing of China right now, because it, it's it's a lot. It's I could write a book. Maybe I should write a book about it. But it, it's it's a lot of topics on what's going wrong. And and then we'll 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 discuss a few of them to see what the Chinese lens and the Chinese view is and, and why the Chinese government is not in panic and the rest of the world is. <laughs> so the 10 topics are, are very, very simple. The first one is GDP growth is is going down. I mean this is really below 5% and it's it's probably never going to go up. Second one, real estate. The bubble is 
popping or not. That's the big question, but there's not much investment happening anymore. It's going downwards, knowing that 30% of the GDP has been infrastructure of the real estate. Big deal. The third one, youth unemployment. I mean, we have lots of talent in China. They just don't want to work. Uh, 21% is actually of urban young people are unemployed. A huge amount. Only Brussels breaks that record. Pascal, is that they don't want to work or there is no work? It's a combination. And that's point 10 is uh, the last point is why they don't, there is no work. But uh, the other uh, reason is the fact that they feel that they are not interested to go into the rat race of China anymore. So the young generation, specifically Gen Z. The fourth point is the social unrest. And this has to do with post-pandemic COVID. We've seen it with uh, the A4 revolution, everybody buying A4 white papers and then coming to the streets. So that could become a systemic problem. Then the foreign direct investment, 0.5, is down 80% compared to last year. It means that investors and, and companies from outside China are not putting money inside China. Worse even, people inside China with a lot of money are leaving with their money to out of China, going to Singapore, going to the US, going to a lot of places. So money's not flowing in and it's flowing out, which of course Xi Jinping doesn't like very much. The sixth point is the demography. We all know that India has surpassed China in number of people. Uh, China's not making babies anymore. And in time or over time, this is going to be a huge issue with an older population that is now becoming older and older, more and more people. There's 260 million people over 60 years, and it's going to grow. And if the young people don't want to work, they don't make babies. I mean, how are we going to solve that problem? Number seven, exports are down. It means that the world isn't buying as much from China anymore as it used to. And exports is a big driver of the economy in China. A point number eight, that's even worse, maybe. Consumption is down. People are not buying anymore. The Chinese have stopped buying. If you think about Alibaba and Singles Day and all these things, suddenly there's an, a deflation or... or uh, there's no inflation in China. It's the opposite. We are actually have a big issue with uh, prices being too expensive. In China, the prices are going down. It sounds great. Not so good for growth. Not so good for employment. It's actually a big risk for China to keep growing. Number nine, the local government death is out of control. Some local governments in China cannot pay back their debt because of the pandemic specifically. They had to pay so much for doing the testing, doing the lockdowns, having people secure everything. But also they've been selling lands to the real estate companies that are now not buying anymore because there is a, a real estate issue. So that's point number nine. Point number ten is the private enterprise or private companies are very cautious, are not investing, they're not hiring, they're basically wait-and-see attitude. And if you know that almost 80% of all the innovation in China comes from private companies, if you also know that they are hiring most of the people and that they are responsible for a lot of the growth of China these days, well, it doesn't look so good. So these are 10 terrible points. And every day, I read an article on one of these points saying that this is the end of China. China is not going to survive this because, and, and the reason and the facts are there, because it's just going to pop this bubble or the problem, the crisis is, is structural. The crisis, the whole situation, economy is systemic problem that cannot be solved. So what I'm very interested in, if you would have to pick one, one point, just one, that you say China could potentially not 
I mean, be failing or not be able to surpass the U.S. and become the superpower that it is intended to be, um, what point would you uh, actually pick out of these 10? What is the biggest challenge that Beijing and Xi Jinping should tackle right now? Stephen, I will start with you because you're good with the ugly. <laughs> well, it sounds very depressing, Pascal. I've never heard you share such a depressing story of China before. I would start with your number one, the GDP, because I think a lot of the issues of 2 to 9 or 2 to 10 are, are linked to the fact that you have a slowdown in economic growth. Stephen, you're right. I mean, this is the number one point that many economists are saying. And it's actually the only point where Beijing agrees with most of the economists outside China is that China's GDP is slowing down. And so this is something that is actually a big issue in itself. But... There's a but, and that's the positive. You said I'm talking about a lot of distressed and negative news. Well, I'm going to give you the reason it's not as bad as it sounds, or at least Beijing doesn't believe so. And I'm kind of leaning in that direction on this point for sure. Okay. China has an $18 trillion economy. That's the second largest after the US with $25 trillion. The next is Japan with about $5 trillion. So China is just crazy big. And growing at a 5% that they do today means adding the GDP of the Netherlands every single year. It's not that 5% is bad. If you go back to 2014, this is where the US used to be at 18 trillion. And if you go see their growth over the past 10 years, I mean, it's not been above 3% at any time, except with the pandemic when they had a decline first and then they bumped up again. So you clearly see that this... For such a big economy, you cannot grow at 10% anymore. It's impossible. So Xi Jinping himself has said, we will have a slower growth. And this is a planned direction. Maybe it's going too fast down, but it's planned to actually go below five because they want to go to quality. They want to go to a green economy. They want basically to solve the bubbles of real estate and stuff like that. This is all hurting the economy. I think the GDP downturn and the, the going below 5% is actually much more planned and managed than we think because it's a huge economy. But you're right, it is something that is not going to change back to 10% ever. And so this is going to put pressure on the Chinese economy. If you look at GDP per capita, then China is only one-fourth of the US It's because they have four times more people. And so before China, every Chinese is as rich as every American that could take 100 years at this growth. And that is indeed an issue. Now, if they ever become as rich as every Chinese, as every American, I mean, I'm not sure America can even compete with China anymore at that point, but that's a different story. So I think GDP is uh, probably one of the biggest issues, but I think for a size like China, it's probably acceptable to grow at only 5% right now. Would it be a big problem if it slows down to, for instance, three? It would not be a big problem because it's expected to go up to three. This is in the next years. But what the difference is that if you go back before the pandemic, everybody expected China to surpass the US in, in GDP growth by 2028-29. Now they're talking about 2040, which means suddenly there's like 10 years more time that the US has before China catches up to be at the same size as the US. And so, yeah, it's just going to slow it down. It could become a problem, of course, because if the economy doesn't grow, then unemployment and other issues are popping up, which could, I mean, it could be 
it could create new problems outside of the growth of China. And but that we can talk about the other nine points in different different uh, moment. So, Julie, what do you have as your number one point? Yeah, nice bridge. I think <laughs> I think you just introduced it. Uh, even um, I think I would go with number four with the social unrest because I can imagine that this is not happening by coincidence and it's not like China is super surprised that this is happening and that this is slowing down. It's more like a combination of the planned economy versus market economy. But the question, I mean, I learned it from the best, Pascal, from you, uh, is how are they going to make sure that everybody stays happy consuming? And I think all those other things, how is the individual in China doing and how are they approaching all of this? is a fascinating thing to see. I also read somewhere, maybe you can elaborate on that, like that it's also because the fact that in COVID times that China actually really invested in the we part of the society and in the companies and that everything kept running, but not really individual in the consumer. So they have had a hard time and they are not like totally ready to spend again, uh, like in other countries. So how is that individual consumer doing and with the other statistics that you're saying like are we going into a social unrest situation and then is, is that the fuel of that i'm curious but uh, i'm sure you'll tell us more the social unrest is something we've been hearing a lot about in the western media you don't hear a lot about it in asia and the reason is that the chinese are much more compliant and much more cautious than most people living in europe or in america What that means is that some people, specifically if you lived in Shanghai and you had three months of lockdowns, I have very good friends who just came back after 20 years living in China, Belgian friends, they're back in Belgium, and they had to be three months really caged into their home with three kids having to go to school digitally. And I can tell you, I mean, mentally for them, it was an incredible pressure that they had. And for them, I mean, they don't really want to go back. And it's very clear that this is the attitude of most foreigners living in Shanghai. And also a lot of Chinese who have experienced this have the same feeling. Some of them left China, specifically those with a lot of money. They left China because they've just given up if they have another passport. Everybody's asking another passport now, so that's definitely something that is changing. But it's also something that if you look at the whole population, not just Shanghai and the places where it was really bad, you look at the whole population and you don't just look at the educated elite in the big cities, that you see that most Chinese have just moved on and they have just left the pandemic behind them. What's very interesting, I had a very a good Chinese friend who visited me this summer and we talked about it and he was saying like, nobody in Shanghai in, of the, his friends are still talking about the pandemic. This is the past. You don't see it if you go to the shops. You don't see it if you go to the restaurants. People are consuming everywhere. The only difference is they're consuming less money and they're not traveling abroad anymore. They're going to the cinemas, they're going to restaurants, but they're spending less, but they're still spending, they're still going every place. And so the mental health of some people, the individuals, has definitely been hurt a lot and is in real trouble. There's not a lot of social network or fabric from uh, psychologists and so on in, in China. There's a lot of family network that is, is, is they're falling back. This is also one of the reasons many of the people, Chinese young people, are going back to their families and not staying in the cities because the family is actually supporting them. So it is a huge social change. And so what I'm seeing happening is that the young people, but also in general, the Chinese, 
have actually start thinking different about the system. They start diff thinking different about themselves, about themselves as an individual. The health is much more important, mental health and physical health. I mean, fitness is out the roof. I mean, uh, it's crazy how many fitness places that you have built. People in China are surfing now, they're skiing, they're doing everything they've never done before. Skiing is a big thing. I mean, everybody wants to be healthy and fit. And so that's the reaction of the pandemic. So you do see that the Chinese are changing themselves into becoming more healthy themselves. But if you purely look at the social unrest, you don't see it really. Because the Chinese, most of them, have feeling like we're just going to move on. We can't do anything about the system anyway. It is what it is, and we'll just take it as it is now. But it's very clear that Beijing has gotten a lot of pressure, and this also reflects in how they're communicating now with supporting new initiatives and so on. So I think social unrest is, in my view, overrated. I don't think it's going to blow up or pop up, uh, but I do believe that the Chinese social fabric is changing. And that could go in many directions. Very interesting to follow for me because it's more about the individual and not about the organization anymore. And that, just like you said, from a, I mean, Stephen, from a customer experience point of view, this is also going to be interesting to see how brands and how companies are going to, going to deal with that. Also within their organization of talent, how are they going to deal with people, Gen Z and, and millennials that now suddenly don't want to work at the same conditions that they used to before? So the rat race is over in my view. Exactly why I chose the point, because they're not used to thinking from the individual. So I, I think that that change and that different thinking is uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah, I agree that they're not thinking in the same way as individuals, but I've written a book about that, that they're very individualistic in some way, and specifically in sports and very competitive individualistic. Yeah, and I meant it more on, on like the, the government point of view, like you've, you've yep. always also shared sure. like how they... I think in terms of the system and, and we to indeed eventually make it a good win for the individual. So um, I'm, I'm curious, like, how uh, were they surprised by that or not? But uh, we'll see, I guess. So I don't think there's going to be social unrest that is going to change the system. But I think the system is going to change because the social fabric is changing. Mm -hmm. So, Peter, you're my last uh, victim. or uh, <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, What do you think? For me, what is really interesting is the age element, mm. because I, I find that fascinating. It's something that we're going to be faced here in Europe, but you know that demographic decline. Well, while you were talking, I actually looked up the age pyramid of Japan and China. Mm -hmm. If you go to Nigeria, that's a pyramid. Yes. I mean, that is growing from 200 million to 500 million in, in the next 50 years. But if you go to Japan, it's in decline. Japan is going from 125 million to about, well, 75 million by the end of the decade. And I don't know if the stats are correct, but if you go to China, which is now peaking at 1.4 billion, the estimate is they're going to go down to 770 million by yes. the end of the decade. It's that rough. is insane. I mean, that means that basically your population is just going to half in the next 50, 60 years. And I'm wondering if this is something where, you know, you see that the government is panicking about, that they feel that they have to do something about this, because China, you know, basically in decline, that's the first time we've seen that, you know, in our lifetime. Yep. And to answer your question, the government is kind of panicking on the demography issues. I mean, and this, 
I think the demography and the GDP growth that is going down are two systemic things. These are structural. These you cannot just change in just a, a, a few years' time. It's, it's going to be decades before actually this can be changed. And the government is very aware of it. The difference that I have is that I've lived in China for 20 years. I've been there since 1990. And mm, the only story I've heard since 1990, which is almost 33 years now, is that every Chinese was always telling me, when you get into a cab, there's just too many people. <laughs> so overpopulation has always been a bigger issue than a declining population. Of course, going from one to the other is a huge challenge because ultimately we get an older population and the young need to support that. The challenge I have a little bit with most people writing about that, and some predict that in 10 years, China is going to collapse because of demography. So that's the worst case scenario. Gordon Chang uh, is one of these people that has written a book 20 years ago about the collapse of China. Every year he's been predicting the collapse of China and now this year it's going to happen. But the reality is that if you look at the demographics, an overpopulation is much more costly than a, a smaller population. So 700, 800 million people, in my view, would be ideal for a very strong China. The question is, how do you get there? And that is the challenge because these old people need to have pensions. But there are things that China is doing. First of all, if you look at the population, the pension age in China is 55 for women and 60 for men. So they still have some room there to wiggle. And so they can still do a lot of things over there. Taxes are also quite low, which means that they could increase taxes somehow. If they increase the taxes, like in Belgium, I think China for the next 20 years is set to pay for the older people. <laughs> so I don't think that's an issue. Of course, you don't do that from one day to the other. But there's a lot of mechanism and tools that the Chinese government still has. The one thing, tool that the Chinese government does not have, is to make older women in China have babies. I mean, it's really hard to tell the women, now you need to have baby. It's easier to say you can't do it with a single child policy. They've done that since um, the 90s. Uh, so no, earlier, it's been up to 2016, there was a single child policy. The problem is that right now, because the economy is not good, because apartments are expensive, because of the real estate issue, because of the future of their child being expensive because they spend like one third of their money on education, all of that money has to go to one child. If you have two children, basically you have no food to eat from. And so the Chinese mindset has been put for decades into one child, one child, one child. And so that doesn't get out of that, that mindset. And many young couples don't want to have two children, specifically in the cities, because they believe they can't afford it. And they also feel, I had a great time as a single child because they grew up in the boom of China. Everything was good. With all the attention. I had all the attention. And I'm doing well, so I want to give the same thing to my child and send them to the US or, or the UK for education, and then they will become the next Elon Musk and whatever. So that is a real big issue. Now, I do believe that China is doing a lot about that to change it. I don't think you can just get more children easily. But I do believe that over time, if the economy settles and everything calms down, and that's the question of the other nine points, if that's going to happen, then children are going to grow again. And so we are right now extrapolating the 1.4 billion to 770 million based on the childbirth today. 
That could be different in 10 years or 20 years from now, simply because Chinese love children. I mean, there's no country where, I mean, I've lived there, and when we had our, our daughter in the streets, Chinese were coming to her to basically pinch her cheeks, and they, they love children, they want children. It's a symbol of wealth. So I don't think the 2,500-year history of Chinese having children is going to go away any day soon. So I don't think that's a problem, but it will take time. But what the Chinese government is doing, and that's the master plan, is really to put everything on automation, on robotization, on AI, and also on making people smarter. So the fact that they are putting more time and money into education, get them to, to study more, they want to make Chinese smarter to become more efficient. I think the bigger issue of the demography is probably the productivity. And so if you can get all the people, the workers or the farmers, to actually raise their productivity by having them be more educated, have better tools, be more automated, and so on, ultimately, the Chinese society will become more efficient. And their master plan, that's the whole idea, is then they just need to sell that to the whole world. They know that the West is buying less from China, but there's the rest of the world. Nigeria, for example, there are lots of new people that will consume more and they will go to Southern Hemisphere, go to Africa, go to Asia, go to Latin America. And that is why Xi Jinping is putting so much effort on the Global South with the BRICS nation that is now extended to seven more countries. I don't know if you read that big news, uh, six new countries. So now it's, it's, it's like 11 countries in BRICS and it's going to go up to 30 or 40 countries. So the BRICS today is already bigger than the G7. And so this is completely changing the world. And so China's betting everything on making its economy more digitized, more industrialized, more productive, more efficient, smarter, and then sell that to the new world in the South. And that's where they have a lot of people. And they can have workers there as well. So this is the master plan. Will it work? We never know with China. They always have great plans and usually they work. From time to time, like with the real estate bubble, it doesn't work so well. <laughs> I hope we're still alive in 2100 to be able to see you, Pascal. <laughs> when are you going back to China, Pascal? Uh, definitely in April. We have a tour with Nextworks planned. And so I'm very excited to work towards that, that we've started already. Probably before that as well, but right now I have no no plans. I was invited twice to go to China, but it collided every time with a keynote I had to do in Europe. Yeah. So it's, I mean, agenda, it's always a challenge yeah. these days. But people can register for the tour and join you in April. Oh, definitely. And we're going to go to the south of China, which is really the beating heart of the economy right now. Shenzhen and Guangzhou. This is where all the automation and robotization is happening. Actually, China is buying more robots than the whole world together, to give you an idea. Huh. And so we'll see this in logistics, we'll see this in electrical vehicles, and in, in, in every possible manufacturing and other industries. I mean, it's going to be amazing to see, because I think what we've missed these past four years is to think that China just stood still. And with all the bad news, we think, oh, for four years, China hasn't done anything. Well, I'm going to surprise people in April to see how much they advanced and they're years ahead of some of the industries we have here. But cool. I'm not going to share more secrets. Yeah, cool. Fantastic. That's a beautiful end note of this episode. Thanks, Peter, Julie, Pascal, for sharing all your insights and your stories. 
And uh, thank you to all our listeners. We hope to hear and see you again in our next episode somewhere in October. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.